If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Ruler skin bucking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks. The Hammer has lost a legend. Rest in peace, Gordy Lewis. Fans, play some teenage head because here's Scott That's it. That's how you feel better. Just play some more. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. It's 900 CHML and Hamilton 980 CFPL in London. Thanks for joining us. Great to have you here. Feel free to jump into the fun. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. It just seemed fitting to uh, play some more Teenage Head today as uh, people, again, try to uh, uh, um, d- d- comprehend what has happened in, in the loss of uh, Gordy Lewis of Teenage Head. The tributes continue to pour in on social media and such, uh, but not a lot more to report on this uh terrible incident which has uh, shocked uh, Hamiltonians and music fans uh, alike but we celebrate as we always do uh, with what they've created and that's the great music that uh, they have left behind. All right uh, lots going on today and uh, well actually as we speak uh, Finance Minister Peter Bethlen Falvey Bethlen Falvey is uh, speaking and talking about the economics of uh, the budget, which has just been talked about, retabled uh, in the throne speech today. Obviously, a lot of has changed between now and then, and the finance minister is talking about that, including uh, inflation rates that we haven't seen in in decades. So uh, more on that coming up a little later on. We're going to have Colin DeMello join us, our Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, a little later on on uh, all of this and try to digest uh, what has uh, what has been put forth, but really nothing new here. It's uh, something that we heard uh, prior to uh, to all of this, so uh, not a lot of surprises uh, as uh, the legislature gets back down to business uh, coming up this late summer. All right, Colin DeMello going to be joining us more on that to, uh, to chat a little later on. Uh, in the meantime, we'll play you uh, a couple of clips here from Lieutenant Governor Elizabeth Dowdswell, and uh, obviously many have been talking about health care and where we go from here. Uh, during the global pandemic, uh, it drew attention, and and um, many, not many, I don't think we're as aware as uh, how crippled our Canadian healthcare system has been uh, over the last several years, right the way across the country, with provinces uh, trying to now play catch up uh, in a post-pandemic phase, and every single province going through the same thing. So again, as I said yesterday, what are we going to do today that's any different from yesterday, or the previous provincial government, or the previous federal government, or what have you? Because uh, at the end of the day, what we seem to be doing is uh, yelling on uh, the provinces to provide another Band-Aid solution to what is a failing Canadian health care system, one that is going to be used to model uh, dental care and pharmacare and all-day daycare. You know, the, the feds jump in at the beginning, give you lots, but then it's up to the provinces to try to pay for it all. And if the feds can't pay for it with their tax base, how is the province supposed to uh, pay for all this which to me just seems like common sense and we're going to be going around and around and around in circles till the federal federal government uh, finally pays attention and adjusts the federal funding formula or do something to uh, allow the provinces to do what they do best and that's take care of their citizens but if they don't have the right uh, tools or money to do so 
uh, it's pretty much impossible, as we are seeing. Here's what uh, the uh, lieutenant uh, governor had to say in regard to health care. Nine out of ten high urgency patients are finishing their emergency visit within target times. Surgeries are happening at nearly 90% of pre-pandemic levels. More can still be done. Your government is actively engaging with health system partners to identify urgent, actionable solutions and will implement whatever measures are needed to help ease immediate pressures, while also ensuring the province is ready to stay open during any winter surge. Uh, but really, at the provincial level, these are just band-aids. This is the same problem that existed before the global pandemic. It's the same problem that's existed for decades. Because when it started, the federal government used to fund half. Now they, the provinces fund over 75% of it themselves. So again, it's not because of lack of programming. It's lack of finances for that programming. And how many times do we have to go through this before somebody, you know, decides we're going to pay more attention to our healthcare system than we are a handgun ban or climate change or what have you? I mean, come on. Uh, here's what the lieutenant governor had to say in regard to the economy. With nearly 370,000 jobs currently unfilled, Ontario is facing a generational labor shortage with the lowest rate of unemployment since 1989. And unprecedented spending throughout the pandemic has created new fiscal challenges here in Ontario and across Canada that will require prudent economic management in the months and years to come. All right, that was uh, Elizabeth Dowdswell, our Lieutenant Governor, giving uh, the throne speech and uh, reintroducing the budget uh, a little earlier on today. Again, lots uh, chatting about uh, Ontario's health care and, of course, the health care right the way across the country. Uh, and once again, looking for provincial band-aids to fix something that hasn't been able to be fixed in the last 10, 20, 30, 40 years. So I'm not sure what the provinces are going to do uh, other than to try to persuade, uh, persuade the Prime Minister that this is, in fact, a priority for Canadians, perhaps more than some of the other things he's been selling in the last uh, several weeks or months, and that this needs addressing. Uh, so hopefully the federal government is listening and we can finally get the provinces and the federal government together to come up with some sort of plan uh, rather than typical Band-Aid provincial solutions, which we have been seeing for the last several decades. Uh, it's now time for Canada and Canadians to stop boasting and puffing their chest out about their Canadian health care system and fix it and fix it. It's universal. But that's pretty much where the satisfaction ends. And it's time that we all work on it together and start in, instead of pushing it off to the provinces and creating another provincial band-aid solution right the way across the country. Let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. He is with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, thanks for taking the time, Colin. I know you're a busy guy, man. I just saw you at the corner of my eye on TV, so I'll try to keep it quick. Uh, any surprises here? A couple of more announcements, but uh, the same old, same old for you here? 
So there are a couple of big things that the government is signaling here. One, they're talking a lot about an economic slowdown, how, you know, pandemic spending uh, is, is now going away, that they're seeing, you know, increased interest rates from uh, the Bank of Canada, as well as um, you know, the higher cost of inflation in, in uh, Canada in general. And so the finance minister is signaling that they're going to slow down their spending a little bit. We don't know exactly what that means, but we know that they're really focused on deficit. So as an example, because of higher revenues last year, the province made an additional $1.1 billion. And instead of taking that money and putting it towards health care, putting it towards education or something else, the government decided to pay down a portion of the deficit. And so, you know, that, that is kind of an indication that they're not necessarily going to put it towards needs, but they're going to put it towards uh, paying down Ontario's deficit and debt. Uh, the second thing that I thought was really interesting is uh, the government indicated today that as, as part of their uh, you know, focus in the healthcare system. Uh, they're looking at the idea of potential expanded privatization. So, still, all healthcare would be provided by OHIP, but what they're saying is they're looking at, you know, not necessarily the status quo when it comes to the healthcare system. So, we already have some level of privatization, some level of pro- uh, private operation within our healthcare system. The government is talking about, you know, as an example, um, instead of you know, having all surgeries done inside of a hospital, maybe go to some kind of a private delivery model, right. but still it would be covered by OHIP. So that was the other big surprising thing that came out of this today. So um, obviously the finance minister speaking now, times are different now, uh, as I guess when this was first introduced, i.e. inflation uh, going through the roof and interest rates going up. How much does that alter what the finance minister has put forward? Well, it alters it slightly, not greatly. Um, the, the, the province isn't necessarily spending anymore. They are talking a little bit more about fiscal restraint and trying to make sure that they're not um, overspending uh, w- when they don't need to be. You know, there are many who will make the argument uh, that the government does not need to focus on austerity at a time when people might be hurting. Uh, the uh, leader of the Green Party, Mike Schreiner, said uh, that yesterday that austerity measures should be completely off the table. Um, but, the, but the province is focusing on some other things as well, right? So ODSP, the Ontario Disability Support Program, uh, they are promising that as of September, that will increase by about 5%. Now, that doesn't amount to much. Right now, somebody on ODSP gets about $1,169. Uh, they'd be getting an additional 60 bucks. They'd be getting, all, all told, about $1,200. Um, so it, it, it's a far cry from what they might need, but the finance minister says, you know, there could be more work uh, to be done. The other big thing here today was a new payment to go to parents to help them with tutoring for their children. So the government is announcing today $225 million to help parents who need, you know, extra tutoring outside of the school setting. We don't know how this would work. We don't know how a parent would get that money, you know, how much tutoring they need or what kind. We don't have the details. But it also begs the question, why not put that $225 million and then some into the education system that we all pay for? Why have that go directly to parents does that not undermine the education system so the government's going to be facing a few questions here in the in the days and weeks to come
Uh, obviously, uh, lots of chatter still about late uh, about healthcare in a post-pandemic world. Uh, they say more can be done. What more can be done at the provincial level? I mean, this is we've been dealing with this for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. What more can be done at the provincial level? Any ideas? Well, it's true that it has been going on for a, a long time in our healthcare system. You know, predominantly because of a lack of funding, both provincially and federally. Um, one of the things that the Ontario uh, uh, Registered Nurses Association is uh, highlighting is the fact that there are a lot of internationally trained nurses. So they got their credentials um, or their training somewhere else in the world, and they are living in Ontario, but they're not credentialed in Ontario. So they're asking the government to fast track. Uh, those credentials. There are about 20,000 nurses, uh, these unions say, that are sitting on the sidelines waiting for credentials, but it takes a long, slow process to get through the system. Mm. So the government has tasked the Ontario College of Nurses, the regulatory body, to you know fast-track their credentials. But nursing unions say, wait a second, you haven't given the college any additional resources in terms of people and money. And without those resources you're not really going to be able to, um, you know, fast-track a lot of people in the time frame that we need. But that is one thing that they're looking at. There's other calls to have, you know, a, a larger uh, recruitment and retention strategy, making sure that nurses who come in don't get, you know, overloaded and overwhelmed by the job mm. and, the, and the, what's facing them right now and don't leave. Um, and, and, and then with immigration as well, trying to bring additional nurses in uh, through immigration streams over the next few years. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief Global News. Make sure you're watching Global tonight for more on all of this. As always, Colin, thanks so much for the time on a busy day. Appreciate it. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It's going to be another month, a uh, month and a day, actually, I believe, before the Conservatives, federal Conservatives, choose a new leader and find out who is going to lead them into the next uh, general election. That being said, lots of polling coming out over the summer, and uh, it's interesting to see what uh, how Canadians are feeling uh, at this point. Also, uh, Stephen Harper a few weeks ago came out and endorsed Pierre Polyevra and hasn't made any difference or has it hurt uh, Pierre Polyevra's uh, chances? Let's bring in Nick Nanos, uh, Chief Data Scientist and Founder of Nanos Research and is with us now. Nick, as always, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm fine and great to join you and all your listeners. So uh, we saw that uh, Mr. Harper came out and endorsed uh, uh, Pierre Polyevra uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, apparently that has or has not had a lot of impact, good or bad or a bit of both. Well, you know, if you think of the long term, if this is about winning the next election, then uh, not really great news for Pierre Poiliev, because, you know, the thing is, is that when we ask Canadians about uh, Stephen Harper's endorsement and whether it had a, a positive or negative impression on uh, on how they felt about Pierre Poiliev, about 46 percent said, hey, man, doesn't make any difference. The fact that Stephen Harper has endorsed Poiliev. But uh, by a margin of two to one, it was more likely to have a negative rather than a positive impression with 35% of Canadians outright negative. 14% said it actually led to a more positive impression. So in the long term, assuming that Pierre Poiliev, everyone thinks that he's going to uh, win this leadership. He seems to be the front runner. So this not a lot of political coattails to win an election, probably more important inside of the conservative tribe. And uh, so that's probably how this is playing out. And how would this have been viewed inside the conservative tribe? Well, we do know when we look at some of the demographic groups that tend to favor the conservatives, 
such as uh, men, for example, and also people that happen to live in the prairies, that the uh, the endorsement is more likely to have a, a positive uh, impression compared to other types of groups. So I think the the reality is is you know let's face it, Stephen Harper. Uh, was a successful prime minister politically. He won a number of elections. He governed for a number of years. If you're running for the leadership and the former prime minister and leader of your party gives you endorsement, you're going to take it. And uh, so I think for uh, Pierre Poiliev, he's probably more than happy to take Stephen Harper's endorsement. And uh, it's also a big signal that uh, obviously Stephen Harper thinks that Pierre Poiliev is going to win because would that be embarrassing or what if someone else ended up winning the uh, the leadership after being endorsed by, uh, you know, the, the previous leader who was a major force in creating the party? Now, I don't want to change what you've discovered here, but does this suggest that the people have more of a negative view of Harper than Polyev? Um, no, I think I think the reality is, is that people already have formed opinions of Stephen Harper and he's a polarizing figure. You know, let's face it. Stephen Harper was successful in a number of elections. And actually, the reason he was successful is because he didn't want to be popular, believe it or not. You know, he started off Hmm. with the assumption that, you know what, not everybody's going to vote for the conservatives and not everyone is going to vote for Stephen Harper. And uh, he just needed enough people to vote to win the election. So it was never a popularity uh, contest for him. And, uh, you know, and but for Poiliev, Poiliev is still a, a bit of a work in progress, I think, for the majority of uh, of Canadians. Probably explains why there's still a lot, around 46%, that you know basically say it'll have no impact because they're probably st- still sizing the guy up. Uh, do you think he will change his pattern, his stripes a bit once the general election, a general election campaign starts, as opposed to that for the party? Well, he's obviously saying the right things. You know, the reality is is that. There are a lot of new party members, right? Because what are they up to? 660,000 or something mm-hmm. like that? That's a big number. Uh, much more than we're in the last leadership uh, convention by the Conservatives, which means there are a lot of people that were not uh, former party members. And uh, and Waliev claims to have signed up more than half of those new people, which means that it's really not a party anymore. It's a movement, especially if uh, Pierre Waliev happens to win, that he's transforming at least the profile of the leadership into people that are just specifically following him. That said, it's probably not enough to win. But people are unhappy with the Liberals. They've been in power for a long time. They're grumpy coming out of the pandemic. They're worried about how they're going to pay their bills. They're worried about the price of food. They're worried about inflation, the rising uh, interest rates. So, you know, the thing is, is luck counts, being in the right place at the right time. So, How about this for choosing your poison? Do Canadians want to vote for a government that they're kind of unhappy with because they've been in power for a long time? Or do they want to try something different, even though some of the ideas that they have that this different option has, as Pierre Poiliev, is not really mainstream on a lot of the big issues? What about the younger voters that uh, Polyev seems to be attracting? Um, it doesn't seem to be the typical, stereotypical uh, conservative voters. Yeah. And actually what's happened is the in the last year, since January, one of the more interesting phenomenon that we've seen in the numbers is that the conservatives, usually who don't do very well among 
Canadian voters that are under 35 years of age have been much more competitive. And I think this is because younger people have really been squeezed and uh, roughed up during the pandemic. Many of them were frontline workers. Um, many of them were healthy and still had to deal with a lot of restrictions uh, in their lives. They missed a lot of things such as graduations and kind of seeing their friends. And now they're coming out of it, uh, coming out of the pandemic and uh, the cost of rent is going up and interest rates are going up. And, uh, and what we're seeing is an increasing number of uh, younger voters drifting away from the liberals and towards the conservatives. And, you know, when Pierre Poiliev talks about Bitcoin and stuff like that, although there's some people that might snigger about that, uh, there are young people that probably agree with Pierre Poiliev that Bitcoin is going to be part of the mix in the future. Maybe it might not be a big part of the future, but it'll be part of the mix. What about the Conservative Party pulling ahead of the Liberals, even without a leader at this point? Yeah, that happens a lot uh, whenever parties don't, you know, it's kind of an interesting research phenomenon. Parties turf their leader and then their numbers go up. And it's because there's nothing to repel voters. So for Canadians, some Canadians might like to see Pierre Poiliev as the leader. Others might want to see Jean Charest, others Leslin Lewis. And as a result, they project onto the party. So, you know, right now in our tracking, the Conservatives have an advantage and have had an advantage for the last uh, couple months. But we really won't know what their real strength is until they select a leader and people can render a decision as to whether they're happy with the decision that the Conservative Party membership have made. Nick Nanos with us, Chief Data Scientist and founder of Nanos Research, talking about the numbers uh, at this stage of the game uh, as the Conservatives are about a month out of choosing a new leader. Nick, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take it easy. You too. Bye-bye. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, lots of chatter over the last uh, few weeks in regard to Hockey Canada and the scrutiny they have been uh, have come under uh, as a result of uh, allegations coming forward, how their money is being spent to uh, pay off uh, various uh, situations that they have found themselves in. And um, uh, many are asking for big, big, big changes within Hockey Canada. We've already seen that as uh, the top brass is uh, has stepped down. Toronto lawyer uh, lawyer. Andrea Skinner has been appointed interim chair of Hockey Canada's board of directors, the first woman to hold the position in the history, and uh, takes over uh, for Michael Brindamore, who resigned last week. Uh, obviously, Hockey Canada, under the uh, public and government microscope for its handling of sexual assault allegations against members of past teams, and many are looking for systemic or systematic changes uh, in the organization. Let's bring in Ian Kennedy, writer for the Hockey News Analyst for yahoo.ca sports and author of on account of darkness shining a light on race in sport and is with us now ian thank you for the time i hope you're well no problem thanks for having me uh obviously this is a black eye for hockey canada but does this signal change are we going to see change or is this just all cosmetic well i mean we're talking about an interim uh change here michael brindamore being out but his term was up in november anyways uh now i i i I'm not against the hiring of Andrea Skinner or the appointment into that position. I think that uh, she brings a lot of the things that we would want uh, from a leader in that position. But we are talking about a systemic issue, not just something that can be switched or changed overnight by 
one person who was a member of the existing board already trading places with another person that was a member of that board. Uh, that's not the kind of sweeping change that's going to make any long-lasting impact. Uh, it's just kind of a Band-Aid on the wound right now, in my opinion. Uh, Andrea Skinner, part of the board uh, up in, I, I guess, for four years at this point. Um, should she be a part of this, or is she part of that culture as well? Well, I mean, she was brought in through some diversity and inclusion efforts within the board, too. Very, uh, you know, a qualified candidate who has a great background playing uh, NCAA hockey at Cornell and, and uh, working in the legal field and, and doing a lot of diversity and inclusion work. But uh, it, it, the whole board needs to go. I mean, nobody that's been functioning under this uh, governance right now, led by you know, Scott Smith and Michael Brindamore, uh, they've all been kind of impacted by how things have been done. And regardless of any change, that they think they can do. They've all been part of that system. And uh, I think the public is, is looking for sweeping monumental change, not change that uh, the action plan right now is putting forward or that any one person serving for a couple more months can do. And, and that's what I think we really need to focus on is if this board is committed to that change that everyone wants to see, are they planning all to run for re-election again in November and will they get that? Because if, if this board is re-upped, then that's really a commitment from Hockey Canada that no significant change moving forward beyond this year is is in the forecast. Uh, many have say, used the term meaningful change. What does that mean? Uh, w- with an organization this large, where does that start? What does that mean? Meaningful change, I think, starts right from the initiation phase, the day a a kid first picks up their hockey stick and steps on the ice is when the education component of all this needs to begin. And before that, uh, any person gaining a coaching certificate or being able to volunteer Mm. for an organization at the grassroots level needs to be heavily educated on the issues they're going to face to do with not just sexual assault and violence and consent, but you know, racism and the hyper-masculinity that we're talking about that leads to these issues, and homophobia and transphobia, all of those things need to be part of a comprehensive education plan that reaches right down to six, seven-year-old children that are then able to, you know, when they first use the term that's inappropriate, a coach or a manager or volunteer can respond appropriately and educate, not just you know, say that's not a word that we use, which is a step, but it's not necessary. It's not the the end step, but they can really slow everyone down and teach them about being accepting and inclusive because that's where sweeping change happens. And and unfortunately, that means that we might be five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years away from uh, seeing the end result of whatever is coming mm-hmm. um, Anything that is going to be done right now is going to be reactionary, um, stopping behaviors but not changing behaviors. Uh, I I never got to the point of coaching, but certainly was behind the bench with my son for a a small period of time, and I was amazed at what you had to go through in order to even be able to do that. And then with coaching, it was much more extensive training and such. Are they just focusing on the wrong things? I think so. I think that the, the, you know, we, everyone has to do the respect in sport, which is 
a good mm-hmm. step. And all those things have been coming slowly over time. But it's really not changing the way that coaches talk to each other and talk to the teenage boys in particular. That uh, that locker room talk really hasn't disappeared. It's just kind of, it's almost like a hoop that, that a lot of people jump taking those trainings to get in and then they revert directly back to their, their ways before, you know, we can all, we all understand what a good diet means and to eat healthy. But when you put the, uh, you know, the, the temptation in front of us and we see other people doing things, we don't always follow through with our own plans. And that's kind of where we are with this. We really need to reach back and uh, implement a lot of training right now for all coaches, because that's, that's the guardians. That's the people that are, are allowing it to continue right now. I mean, as much as we want Hockey Canada to change, uh, this is going to have to happen on a coach-by-coach basis because they're the ones that are there. They're the ones teaching the kids. It's not Scott Smith mm. standing in a dressing room. You know, it's um, whoever, mom or dad or, or cousin or volunteer or anybody that's uh, interested in the game of hockey. Those are the people that are really going to have the impact on the future of this. Ian Kennedy with us, writer for the Hockey News, analyst for Yahoo.ca Sports, author of On Account of Darkness, Shining a Light on Race in Sport, talking about what needs to be done to change the culture at Hockey Canada. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you so much for having me. The Ontario Legislature, uh, hundred, uh, the Ontario Legislature back in session, throne speech delivered today. Uh, not much new there, uh, from the, uh, the, the pre-budget stuff that we had already heard other than, uh, $225 million to direct payments to parents to help their kids catch up if they need support. Uh, also, uh, the government will boost disability support payments by 5% uh, and tie into uh, future increases to inflation. Other than that, uh, the same old, same old, although the finance minister did come out afterwards and talk about how the economy is starting to slow down as a result of where we are in a uh, post-pandemic world. Let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing well. Uh, any surprises for you here, Henry? I mean, I guess it was all kind of predicted, although I guess the economy has changed uh, quite a bit since this was first uh, introduced. Yeah, yes, it is. But I, I think I'd like to talk about the, uh, you know, the, the, the throne speech itself, which in some ways was very unusual because there were parts which talked about the goals that he has, that the government has, uh, which are sometimes very vague, uh, which is normal. But he talked. What he really talked about in a very concrete way are th- roads he's going to build. He was he was just checking off. I'm going to build a, a road from here to here, from here to here. We're going to give a new uh, a bridge to, uh, on the Queen Elizabeth Way in St. Catharines. And I mean that's the most specific stuff I've ever heard in a throne speech. Tells me that he really you know he sees himself as uh, as Doug the Builder, and mm. uh, and actually he ended his throne speech. The talking about hearkening back to what he what seems to be his favorite uh, former premier, and that's Bill Davis. And he talked about how much Bill Davis built when he was, was uh, pr- uh, premier of the province. So th- this tells me that this is how he sees himself right now. He's a builder, 
and and he's trying to emulate uh, Bill Davis and what Bill Davis did, and he he and I think he wants to be as popular as Bill Davis, and and you know that's that's what he's very I think what he's really interested in for a lot of other things, whether it was the uh, you know the health sector or the problem of um, inflation. Basically, there was really nothing new. I mean, he's saying I'm dealing with it, but he's al- he already announced things in the past to deal with it. Uh, so there was really nothing new, but uh, but the enthusiasm he had for the road building I thought was pretty dramatic. And of course, he also talked about uh, he wants to get uh, housing built, particularly along transit lines. And he he but he was really sort of aiming at Toronto and Ottawa, where he wants to change the government. When he's where he wants to give the the mayor a lot more power than the, the mayors have there. So I don't know uh, why he left out. Ter- Toronto, uh, sorry, Hamilton or any other place, but apparently he wants the mayors of uh, Toronto and uh, Ottawa to be very strong, and he expects them to basically help him do what he wants to do in terms of uh, building housing. Uh, so uh, we've talked about this in the past, Henry, that it seemed that build uh, the word build was a bad word in Ontario, for or Canada for that matter, for the longest time. Is this good or is this bad? Is this going to resonate? Well, I think I think a lot of people are going to say, yeah, you know, because he said you know, he was saying not only was he saying I'm going to build a road from A to B, he's going to say now people are going to save up to 35 minutes on this road, on this other road, they're going to save 30 minutes when they go to do their commute, and uh, you know, and he, he was he had he was talking about all these poor people who have to commute, and this is how much time I'm going to save them. But let me tell you also though about this before people get their hopes up uh, too high right now. These are all 10-year programs. Mm-hmm. So, so what is going to be built when and when is it going to be ready? And the best we can say is it's going to be built within these 10 years. But, you know, it may very well be some of these things will be built, but they're going to be built uh, later, you know, later than 10 years. We know when, sometimes when they go to build things, things aren't built on time. So, uh, but it's a big, you know, it's something like $87 billion to do all of this stuff. So it's uh, you can just see where he wants to go, you know, uh, on this, and and I'm sure people are going to, those people who are commuters are probably going to like what he has to say, um, and uh, he also talked about building affordable housing for young, you know, young families, young couples who can't get a house now. The problem with that one is, is he doesn't control the the mortgage rates that these people have to pay. So, you know, no, but I think that's why he's talking about more control for the uh, municipality, for the yeah. mayor, in order to get some of these projects through that are being stopped through nimbyism. But, you know, it's, it's interesting you say that about housing in, in that part of the speech. Uh, that's a fascinating point. But, you know, this leads back to what we were talking about long before the election. And this was just before the last election. Every single party, including the Greens, said they all had a housing plan. They're all going to be. I don't know what it was, a million homes or a bazillion homes uh, in 10 years. And we have never heard that from every single political party in the past. And I think that just goes to show you the deficit that there is. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly there's a lot of people. What happened over, I think, over the last 10 years, uh, with, with the interest rates so low, a lot of people who never thought maybe they would be able to get a house, certainly get a house, uh, buy a house when they were so young, uh, thought that they could get it. And what what it turned out, of course, is when you had the mortgage rate so low, you had a whole slew of people who bid up the prices of all the houses. Mm. Now the houses, now the owners who are trying to sell, 
uh, are, are, have an inflated view of how much they should get. And we're finding that these young couples can't get the mortgage money because the interest rates have gone up. So, you know, that's a complication for, you know, even if you've got the housing stock, it's going to, you know, afford the, you know, the premier does not have, uh, you know, control over what the uh, interest, interest rates on the mortgages are going to be. So, I mean, it, but I'm sure it's, a lot of people are going to hear that and say, oh, that's great. I, you know, I want to have an affordable house. And it uh, depends on, you know, what, what they're talking about and how quickly it'll, be get, it'll get there and whether the federal government or, will help out and maybe covering some of the costs of those houses or, or letting, letting people have really long-term mortgages uh, and, mm. uh, or, or give them special rates. Uh, you know, I don't know. They might jump in on that. So we'll have to see. Henry Jasek with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, talking about the fallout of a throne speech. Henry, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, same to you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Bizarre uh, story uh, coming out of Florida. Shockwaves uh, across America in response to the news. The FBI had searched the private Florida residence of Donald Trump in an unprecedented move that prompted threats of retaliation from the former U.S. president and his, his allies. Uh, the court-authorized raid on uh, Mar-a-Lago estate appears to be related to the long-running investigation into whether uh, the former president mishandled classified government documents when he left the White House, uh, for example taking stuff with him. To talk more about all of this, Reggie Tacchini, our Washington correspondent for Global News, he is with us now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. Is this all about uh, Donald Trump vacating the office and taking uh, uh, sensitive files with him? It appears to be uh, linked to that. The Department of Justice and the FBI are being incredibly tight-lipped about what this uh, search warrant um, was was all about. But at the end of the day, this does kind of link back to January 2021, when the former president left office, left Washington, went to Mar-a-Lago, but brought more than a dozen boxes with him that uh, were found to have been carrying classified uh, information that goes against the Presidential Records Act. This has been kind of a fight with the National Archives and the Department of Justice and the former president for more than a year. The big question is, if stuff was returned and, uh, you know, additional stuff was left behind, what exactly was it that the former president was holding on to? Uh, will we ever know? When will we know what they have found if they found anything? So the Southern District of Florida doesn't publicize its affidavits, um, you know, despite, you know, repeated requests over the number of years. So we may not know what what was a part of that search warrant unless the former president makes public what the search warrant, uh, you know, contained. And it's unlikely that he's going to do that, even though. He's the one who ultimately publicized this in the first place. So we may not ever get an idea as to what was going on. That is kind of adding fuel to the fire for the Republican side right now who are arguing that this is nothing more than a political hit. So they're demanding to know exactly what it was that the Department of Justice was going after when they sent the FBI into Trump's house. Uh, we've heard many experts say today the FBI doesn't do this just on a whim or on a fishing expedition. Um, what does it say when the FBI shows up? 
Well, I mean, look, this is unprecedented. Federal agents have never gone into a former president's house before, and this is not something that would have just been done uh, quickly without I's dotted and T's crossed. This very easily, likely, and probably was run up and down the rungs of the Department of Justice for weeks, if not uh, the last couple of months. And the Attorney General and the Deputy Attorney General would have likely been briefed on this. So, too, would highest members within FBI, and that includes Director Christopher Wray, who is a Republican and who is a Trump appointee. Also Hmm. worth remembering, this would have had to go to a federal judge as well for them to sign off. And that sign off means that that judge who sits as an independent who is not linked to this ultimately believed that there was some kind of potential crime committed and probable cause existed. So Republicans will argue that this was all for nothing. Department of Justice, FBI and that federal judge will counter. Uh, The uh, former president wasn't there. Is that accurate? He was not there. He was in New York at the time. And would this have been any different had he have been there or would they have done this if he was there? Is that is that a moot point? Well, I mean, I don't really know if 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 this would have been any different had he been there. I think the the timeline to look at right now falls where the Department of Justice likes to see itself when it comes to these investigations. And there is an election on the line, typically policy within DOJ suggest that they won't open an investigation within 90 days of an election. Well, here we are. We're about 91 days out from the midterm. So there could be a reason that this was carried out yesterday, not today, not tomorrow, because this has been a uh, an attorney general who has really prided himself on trying to separate himself from the White House, unlike what we saw during the last administration, while at the same time making these comments that no one is above the law. Is Donald Trump or will he use this to raise funds in some way? He already started last night when that statement came out. uh, The former president, uh, you know, in that that multi-paragraph statement calling this a dark time in America. As soon as you scroll to the bottom of that, there was a donate here button and automatically (laughs) sent you to various political organizations that are affiliated either with Donald Trump or or with uh, the Republican Party. So this is going to be seized upon not just by the former president, but also by people who are up for election in this year's midterm as a way to say, look, we need to get Democrats out, Republicans are the only thing that is going to keep this country safe from this kind of activity. It is worth pointing out, though, Scott, as all of these Republicans call this an attack on Donald Trump, these are the same Republicans who lauded the FBI when they opened up an investigation into Hillary Clinton and her emails just 11 days before the election in 2016. Uh, Anything more, Reggie, on uh, Donald Trump's tax records and releasing of them? Is there more information on that today? Well, we understand that uh, the committees that are doing these investigations in Washington will be able to get access to Donald Trump's tax returns. This has been a long-standing fight that repeatedly finds itself thrown up against obstacles uh, and delays. And it is also worth pointing out that the reason Donald Trump is in New York and not in Mar-a-Lago is because, uh, well, A, his summer home is in Bedminster, New Jersey, but B, they are preparing for uh, depositions with the New York Attorney General linked to business practices. Again, something that the former president's tax returns are going to play into quite heavily here. Uh, But that's the reason that he was in New York and not in Mar-a-Lago. So the president's personal life, his business life, and his former political life are all clashing right now as he tries to take on 
and new political life. Uh, we've talked about this re- uh, before, Reggie, and obviously there's no right or wrong answer here. But, you know, you have to think with all of the attention, all of the distraction, every all of the baggage that is Donald Trump's life. Is this the best the Republicans can do? Uh, at what point do they say to themselves, we're better off without him uh, and, and we can we can put forward a better candidate with less baggage and 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 less offensive, I guess? Well, I I think they 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 may say that or that sentiment might be brought forward when it has finally been determined whether or not Donald Trump is going to run or not, because we've seen a number of Republicans refuse to kind of push back or accept what's been going on in and around the former president, because if he opts to run, uh, we need to see how much of the Republican Party is going to fall uh, to the knee of the former president and back him like they did when he became the number one candidate leading into 2016. If the former president doesn't decide to run, uh, this could be an opportunity for the Republicans to push back. Uh, but, at the, you know, while there might be Republicans in D.C. that are, you know, wishy-washy on what to do with the with with Trump, uh, you know, across the United States, the vast majority of Republicans are still on side with the former president and a straw poll at the latest CPAC conference that was just held last weekend that Donald Trump was the key speaker at the vast majority in that room wanted to see Donald Trump run again instead of Governor Ron DeSantis. So regardless of what Republicans want to do, Donald Trump still has a firm grip. And, you know, we'll have to see whether or not what's playing out in Mar-a-Lago kind of amplifies or pushes Republicans to support the president more, you know, especially if it turns out that this was simply just a clerical thing that FBI was looking for and not a national security thing. This could bolster and embolden Republican support for the former president. Reggie Giacchini, Washington correspondent for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global for t- uh, tonight for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, in a newly unveiled African strategy, the United States says it will support an arsenal of democratic weapons ranging from investigative journalism to independent corps, uh, courts in an attempt to counteract the harmful activities of Russia and China on the African continent. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you, Scott. And same to you. So, Elliot, is this about combating uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative, which is, from what I understand, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is is building infrastructure in, Ar- in Africa, which, of course, they cannot pay for, so then you just assume control over this. Is this to, is this to strategize against that? Yes, and of course, that's a, not merely in Africa, but uh, it stretches all the way through Europe, so that all roads and, indeed, all routers in the future will lead to Beijing, a trillion dollar program, which they say is strictly not for politics. It's just for economics. But of course, it's to uh, it's a key element in Xi Jinping's goal to emerge as the world's dominant power in Africa. I think uh, the West and the U.S. in particular you know, really are playing catch up. Uh, it's not been noticed that China and Russia are making major inroads there. This is an attempt to counter that influence. And of course, it comes at a time of heightened concerns over over China and its role, and particularly, of course, Taiwan, but also in the world. Is this too little too late or is it never too late? And I guess the beneficiary will be Africa. 
Yes, one of the, the primary message here is that we've not taken you as seriously. I'm paraphrasing what they're saying. We mm-hmm. haven't taken you as seriously as we should, and we were paternalistic. We're here to listen, and we're here to open up cooperative programs with you based on, our, on your needs, not on our needs. But uh, it is really starting behind because China has been busy there. Russia is busy there in, a, in two different ways. One is the Wagner Group, uh, mercenaries, which are clearly just an arm of the Russian state uh, with plausible deniability, have been playing a fighting role there. Uh, helping shift the power balances in a couple different states and doing so in a very brutal fashion. But beyond that, of course, the Ukraine uh, war, the attack, unprovoked attack on Ukraine has led to a a food crisis, a food insecurity crisis Mm. for Africa in particular. The uh, West is there now saying, Blinken is there now saying, well, we understand that. But the reality is that Russia really does have the ability, and they're using it to choke off supplies of food to Africa, and Africa is suffering as a result. How uh, how is Russia and China reacting to this uh, this ambition from the United States? I suspect they're not paying a lot of attention to it. Their attention, after all, is riveted elsewhere. Uh, they will notice it. Uh, it's this is um, should we should add on to this. This is only one part of what the U.S. is now doing. The U.S. uh, under Joe Biden held a major conference not long ago saying that we are going to set up an infrastructure alternative to the Belt and Road. And it's going to be so much better because we are not going to put you into a debt trap and we are going to work with you in all kinds of ways, which uh, the, the Chinese and the Russians haven't been able to do, but particularly the Chinese. So this is really a follow-up to a broader framework of supporting infrastructure needs in Africa as, and elsewhere. All right. Uh, regarding Taiwan, uh, apparently the military drills continue. These started after the visit of Nancy Pelosi, the U.S. House Speaker, and such. Um, it, 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 Taiwan is warning this is showing their ambition. Um, how, how concerned are you about this activity ongoing? Well, this is a, a global flashpoint, uh, something where an, an accident or uh, somebody running into somebody. This is a flashpoint where things could really get out of hand and lead to great power competition. And these are nuclear armed powers, China and the U.S. in particular, of course. So uh, I'm very concerned about what's going on there. The democratic Taiwan is paying the cost of China's ambition. But most importantly, what we see now, and Africa can see this, and the Southeast Asian states of ASEAN can see this, this is how Xi Jinping chooses to announce what kind of role, how they plan to become a global superpower. They are a superpower. How are they going to demonstrate that? Now, what they're doing is demonstrating it in this, in this uh, military fashion. Uh, that's going to give a lot of places pause, having perhaps seen earlier, going back to your Africa story, that they were a benign influence. Peaceable rise was actually the slogan of the predecessor uh, governments or the PRCs, uh, the Communist Party's uh, control over China, peaceable rise, hide your strength, bide your time. None of that's happening. Xi Jinping is proving to be an aggressive um, pursuer of traditional kind of empire building activities. Uh, The other states, Africa included, will have to take note of this. But of course, the states closest by uh, China in particular have to take note of it. 
Taiwan is a democratic place. It's our ally. They are being brutalized. This is perhaps, as they are saying, a prelude to an actual invasion to take over. And keep in mind uh, something not getting a lot of attention, that Taiwan is the world's leading chip maker, microchips, the things that make everything work. Uh, One estimate is 95%, Scott, of the advanced microchips in the world (laughs) are made in Taiwan. And the head of the Mm. company there said, if China tries to take us over, it will actually destroy our business. They can't just come in and take it over. But who knows? Maybe that's what one of the main motivators is for Xi Jinping. It has to be. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, talking about world politics and uh, where we are today. Elliot, as always, thanks so much for your time. Be well. And same to you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The provincial government has tabled its budget and throne speech today, uh, officially kicking off the next session of the legislature, uh, provincial legislature. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, Yes, I am. Uh, Thank you, uh, Scott. This is going to be interesting talking about this. So your thoughts, and not not a lot new here, there has been a 5% increase in ODCP rates and $225 million to parents to help kids catch up, but a lot of this was the budget we had seen before. Uh, is this all doable in your mind? What are your thoughts on this? Um, this is a very centrist budget. Um, it reminds me, because I'm old enough to remember the late, great Bill Davis, I've heard that twice. I've heard that. I've heard that twice today already, Ian. I did not know that. Um, He was called Bland Bill, Bland Billy Brampton, you know, because he was from Brampton. Um, He was, uh, I mean, your quintessential centrist. Uh, You know, Mackenzie King famously said, you know, lean to the left, lean to the right, straddle the center. Well, I thought that that applied to Bill Davis. And to bring it right up to today, because we're talking about the Premier Ford budget, and I did go through it. I skimmed through it, especially the the numbers. It's very centrist. It's very. It, there's nothing radical here. It, you know, anyone who's looking for radical right or radical left, you won't find it. It's a very. What you see is what you get. It's the same budget they introduced last spring in April, and it's the budget they campaigned on in the election. And now they're getting it. In case we couldn't figure it out those two times, they're giving it to us again one more time. And and so it's it's straight. There's just no surprises. There's no shocks. It's what they said they were going to do. Uh, I had one poli-sci professor say he was surprised that they had actually announced projects. They were talking about highways and how much time uh, they would save you and specific builds that were going to happen. Uh, it certainly seems that it seems like this is a build-baby-build uh, uh, budget. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I know that because I'm, of course, in the academy too, and there's this sense that's out there with progressives that roads are bad because, and I've heard people say it, I've had arguments. They say, you build more roads, people will drive on it. And I've always thought that this is a (laughs) unbelievably fatuous statement. It's like saying, if you build swimming pools and fill them up with water, people want to swim in them. If you build a grocery store, guess what? People want to go there and buy groceries. Oh my goodness. You build universities and people want to go there and take courses. Yes. Yes, that's what happens, and it's called growth. Our population is growing because of immigration, and 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 I think Premier Ford understands where the majority of people are. They understand the population is growing, and that means we need more roads, more schools, more fire stations, 
more police stations, more all of the things that deliver services to people because the population's growing. And so people that can wring their hands and talk about, you know, global warming, but, you know, you can't close down the economy. You can, and, and so he's recognized that, that the growth is driving the need for more housing, more roads, more highways. And, and he w won a, a significant uh, majority government in the election. So his, his, his understanding of us was confirmed electorally in the election. Uh, lots of chatter about health care. Uh, again, this goes back to the middle of the pandemic when finally we yep. realized that our system isn't as great as we thought it was and all yep. the provinces are facing the same sort of problems. And again, yes. we keep looking for provincial uh, Band-Aid solutions as opposed to a new template for some sort of funding formula. What more can the provinces do to fix the hospital situation without the help of the feds. Scott, I am so glad you've asked that question because first off, uh, I think just about everybody in Canada and Ontario was talking about this and worried about this. And it's something I've been talking about for a considerable time. I'm not a medical doctor. I understand that. I'm just a user like other people, but I've certainly looked and read studies. I've read Jeffrey Simpson's magnificent book, the former Globe and Mail journalist uh, on, on, on Canadian healthcare. And, and people say, we're not spending enough money. Canada spends, in terms of percentage of GDP, we're in the, I believe, third or fourth on planet Earth. Planet Earth. Anyone who says we are woefully under in spending in healthcare, it just does not know the data. They have not looked at the OECD data. You know, we are at the top of the top of every country in the world, only exceeded by, I believe, well, the U.S. as a percentage of GDP, and I believe Germany's ahead of us. So it's that's not the issue. It's how we're delivering it. And so I was hoping that Premier Ford was going to use this opportunity to say, look, everybody, we have a crisis. It's a crisis when you close down emergency uh, departments. I mean, to me, uh, you know, and I'm just an ordinary Canadian. When I think of hospitals, I actually think of emergency. What the hell else am I going to do? If I'm not health, if I'm healthy, I'm not going to go to a hospital. You go to a hospital to emergency because you're sick and you need help immediately. And so, when the emergency department is closing, this or even temporarily, this is a crisis. And I thought that they could have said, you know. Look, we're already spending massive amounts. We'll continue to spend massive amounts, largest single item in the provincial budget of any government in Canada, of any provincial government in Canada, approaching 50%, by the way. Healthcare is accounting for almost half of all provincial spending. But he said, we, he could have said, we're going to deliver it differently. And he How? could have revisited the debate about which was there in 1965 because I did a whole bunch of research going back and reading the debates in 65 when Lester Pearson, Prime Minister Liberal Lester Pearson, introduced and brought public health care to Canada. And even Tommy Douglas, the very uh, the NDP guy, very pro health care, he said was very clear public health care does not mean it has to be completely delivered in the hmm. public sector. Public health care mean it, it means it is financed and paid the single payer model. And so what's happened in the last 30, 40 years is this idea has developed that it, healthcare must be delivered in the hospitals yeah. by the public sector. What we need are a lot more clinics, hips and knees clinics, routine. I'm not talking hmm. the big ticket stuff. I'm not talking heart or cancer or, or trauma or emergency, yeah. but all the other stuff we should be talking about private delivery and no no 
healthcare workers. This is not, it is not true to say that this is American privatization because there they have all kinds of insurance companies paying. In Canada, as Hillary Clinton understood very well, she said the Canadians have a single payer model. It is not about the delivery. You can have private delivery. In fact, Scott, let me just finish this point out so people really understand what I'm saying. The physical building called a hospital is built by private construction companies. The government of Ontario does not go and own construction companies to build hospitals. People say, well, yes, of course. All of those x-ray machines, those very sophisticated diagnostic x-rays and MRIs, they're not built and owned by the government of Ontario. They're made by companies like Siemens, which is a huge German company, a private for profit company that make world-class medical diagnostics. In other words, the critical point is not who delivers the healthcare. It is who pays for it. And we don't want the American model of all kinds of insurance companies and you have to have your credit card uh, before you can get your, your treatment. We want the Canadian single payer model, but we can have better health care if we decentralize it out of the hospitals as much as possible into clinics mm. across each city. And it would and and then they would be reimbursed. That clinic would be reimbursed by OHIP. OHIP would be the banker. Yeah. And they would set the price for each procedure, just like they do now. The hospital reimbursed, was reimbursed, the Ottawa hospital was reimbursed yeah. when they replaced Ian Lee's knee three years ago. And they got a check. And it's set by OHIP. We could do the same thing and get out of the hospitals and then produce a lot more delivery to get rid of the, the, the queuing and the wait yeah. periods that is upsetting so many people. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, plum out of time trying to solve the health care issue. Ian, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. All right. Do we care if Big Brother is watching us or not? Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. It seems we're a little bit more sensitive to it nowadays than we were uh, when all this technology fun stuff started. Now, the RCMP, we're learning, has deployed spyware to access encrypted communication of targets as far back as 2002. A senior Mount, uh, Mountie said on Monday afternoon, Mark Flynn, the RCMP's assistant commissioner responsible for national security and protective policing, told MPs that between uh, 2002 and 15, the Mounties deployed Canadian-made technology in order to covertly access electronic information. Too far? Uh, is this what we have to do to catch the bad guys? Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He's with us now. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks. So what exactly are we talking about here, Carmi? What's going on? Well, basically, the RCMP has been using tools to infiltrate the mobile devices of criminal targets. You know, in the past, they would simply wiretap someone if they wanted to know what they were what they were up to. Uh, but of course, it's 2022, and increasingly, criminals aren't just making phone calls on unencrypted lines. In fact, the, the very concept of doing all your business exclusively by phone is kind of laughable now. Now we use we use messaging apps, we use social media, we use encrypted um, uh, apps and services, and so the RCMP needs to keep up or to switch their their tools to these these platforms. Uh, otherwise, they won't be able to listen in on the bad guys, won't be able to bring them to justice, won't be able to protect you and I. The problem is, is the tools that they're deploying, they're, they're, they're from a class known as spyware. Basically, what it is, it's an app that sits on the target device. Um, 
and it's it's very stealthily sort of soaks up everything that is happening on that device every every time they log into something every time they transmit data or receive data every time they open an app all that information is then shared with the mothership without the target's knowledge which is awesome the problem is is the rcmp didn't bother telling canadians this is what they were doing before they started doing it they didn't talk to the office of the privacy commissioner didn't get their guidance on what are the checks and balances we need in place to you know ensure we have the right tools to bring criminals to justice but also protect canadians uh, from privacy abuses how do we prevent rogue cops from using these apps in ways that are counterproductive and threatening to canadians we never had those conversations we're only finding out about it now which kind of suggests that i don't know did the rcmp have something to hide i don't know but it doesn't sound good uh, is this any different than phone tapping? Is this just advanced phone tapping? And, uh, you know, did we do all this when that was first brought out? I'm playing devil's advocate here. Yeah, well, it's it's kind of like phone tapping on steroids. So, no, it's not right. really that. It's just... Did we lose Carmi? Have we... <laughs> there we go. Carmi, are that? you there? Oh, yeah, no, that's the, perfect. You're back. Is, Sorry, you were saying RCMP, continue on. Is, is the RCMP listening to me? I, I fear so. Um, but you know, that's so it's, right. it, it's it's kind of like wiretapping on steroids, right? It's it's uh, and in the past, we all kind of knew that that you know law enforcement agencies up to and including the RCMP would use wiretapping as as uh, as part of their craft and 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 all of those you know that was on the books we had legislation in place to ensure that wiretapping was only used in criminal cases that it would target those who were suspected of committing criminal acts that it wouldn't be used for mass surveillance of Canadians there was legislation frameworks in place for that um, that is no longer the case once we switch that to apps that you and I can have planted on our phones in other words there is no rule or framework or limit on what the rcmp can and cannot do with this technology and they say they use it ethically and i believe them Uh, but the problem here is the door has been opened and those protections that we used to we used to enjoy when it was all analog phone-based technology canadians no longer enjoy them the door is now open for that abuse to happen not saying that it is happening but it could and that's what keeps me up at night and it should keep canadians up at night too is this another example, Carmi, of the law is just not keeping up with the technology? Yeah, and you know, you and I have covered this a uh, number of times where technology races ahead. You know, so um, you know, new messaging apps. You know, 15 years ago, would you have believed that you would have fully secure, encrypted communications from an app that you could download for free and reach out and touch anyone, anyone around, anywhere around the world? Um, it's it's nothing short of magical. However, um, you know we don't have those protections, and unfortunately, it is embedded in virtually every phone, every device, every app, every service that we carry in our pocket, and that is incredibly dangerous because it essentially means that the potential for that abuse to happen is there if someone chooses to take advantage of it, and there are no laws that are protecting Canadians in the process. And we are seeing in other jurisdictions where law enforcement. Uh, you know, they, they, they don't have those protections either. And we've seen cases where individual, for example, uh, you know, a rogue cop would then use it to go after a, a particular individual with no warrant. Um, and, and, you know, essentially the, 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 the rights of citizens there uh, are in jeopardy. And unfortunately, north of the border, it's the same thing. So it's legal because the laws don't cover the technology. Is it unethical? 
Um, I mean, to a certain extent, yes, because I mean, obviously, if it's used for uh, the greater good of society, then no, it's not an ethical. It's, you mm-hmm. know, to me, ethical use of technology by those we have entrusted with protecting us in much the same way we give police officers guns because they use them in an appropriate way. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're trained for it. There are rules that govern their use and there are consequences when those rules are breached for them. Um, and so I, I would put these tools and technologies in exactly the same category, the same class, that they are you know, nuclear weapons grade technologies that can be, cause huge harm if, if misused. We need to have better protections for them as we do the other super powerful tools of law enforcement. But the scary thing is we don't. And even scarier is now we have proof that the RCMP has basically been using them for years, not saying anything. And even when they're called on the carpet, they change their story. First, it was 10 cases over the last four years. Then it was 32 cases over a longer period of time. What's the truth here? And why are we not hearing it earlier? Why are we only hearing about it now? So where is this going, Carmi? New laws coming? I think so. I think the uh, the ethics committee hearings on Parliament Hill really are the first step toward um, understanding what the issue is, uh, hearing from all stakeholders, from law enforcement, from the privacy commissioners, both current and former, uh, you know, from uh, government agencies that are entrusted uh, with uh, these overlapping portfolios, uh, and really getting everyone's opinion and expertise, and then also looking at other jurisdictions outside of Canada to see how have they handled privacy as these apps have become more pervasive um, and what kind of laws do they have on the books and eventually we will see Canada's privacy legislation updated to incorporate use by law enforcement of these technologies it is inevitable the problem is it's 2022 the technologies have been in use for years we're only just starting that process now so yet again Canada kind of lags I wish we'd be a bit more of a leader Boy, about 20 years behind in this case. Uh, Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist. Carmi, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. So great being here, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. As uh, we go through the summer of 2022 and we start to see festivals and, and events and things start to happen and people talking about heading back to work, hybrid versions of work and such, uh, a new concern has uh, reared its head. Commuters uh, are used to uh, disruptions and delays, but due to COVID-19, go and up express trains are expected over the next two weeks to have delays as Metrolinx experiences staff shortages. Uh, a spokesperson for the tra- uh, transit agency said the staffing shortages is ex- that they're experiencing are due to COVID-19. To talk more about all of this, Thomas Tenkate with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Toronto Metropolitan University, and with us now. Thomas, as always, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. Great to be with you. Thank you. Are, are you surprised at this point, Tom? Uh, you know, we had Dr. Kieran Moore say earlier on in the week, I believe, that um, he thought the uh, seventh wave had peaked. Are you surprised we're still seeing um, uh, uh, shortages and such uh, with labor and various industries and, and such as a result of the pandemic still? Well, I'm not surprised from from a number of perspectives. I think, you know, we, we have to 
sort of cons- remember that uh, you know COVID, like other respiratory viruses, you know, is easily transmitted. And so, whether or not someone's got COVID or if they've got something very similar to that, you know, they're they're uh, you know likely going to be be off work for for a period of time. And uh, you know, usually uh, like you know more than one day, you know, uh, maybe up to a week or, or more. So so uh, you've got that aspect. Uh, there's the aspect that uh, when we're track when we're tracking. Mo- what they call mobility and and how how mobile people are. One there's a measures uh, there's some mobility measures on on high risk activities, and and we're we're tracking them at the moment, and they're they're all uh, really at the peak versus what they were uh, back in December 2020, and so so we've had this steady increase, and we're basically it means that. People are much more mobile. They're out and about. They're you know back at work. They're they're uh, you know face to face for work. They're they're uh, mm-hmm. hitting the shops. They're in you know recreational settings. They're using public transport. So people are really you know getting out. They're mobile. They're connecting, and and that's as well as people aren't wearing masks as much as they were before. And so so you've got the you know they've got those multiple factors, but then you've also got sort of the non-infection risk factors that are really i think around around burnout and people are just really tired yeah. and you know and these these uh go transport workers of you know them and others have been on the front lines really keeping keeping the system mm-hmm. going for 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 you know the two two and a half years and and it's you know understandable that uh you know people are, are also burnt out as well and we're seeing that in a in a lot of sectors so so you've got both the infection sort of contr- infection risks and issues for that as well as just these non-infection risks, and you know, and the reality is that you know, if you get infected at at work, you can bring it home, and if you get infected at home, you can bring it to work, and so so mm. there's a lot of mixing there. Will this settle down over time as more people get this and get over it, Tom? Uh, yeah, yeah, def- definitely. There's going to be you know they're, they're talking at the moment that you know roughly half of the community have have a good level of immunity. Uh, and and uh, you know and with with uh, you know more people getting the the boost of vaccines and when that when that uh, the uh, the new omicron uh, specific formulation for the for the booster comes in uh, you know soon that that's going to be uh, you know re- really important as well and and you know what we're seeing for for people who are going to hospital and 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 uh, and who are getting infected and getting tested uh, the you know the people who are unvaccinated uh you know double uh double the number that that are, are are vaccinated and so so really a lot of the sort of the the hospitalizations and and more serious outcomes are st- are at the moment really getting driven by people who aren't vaccinated so so it's a again it's a it's a that aspect of you know we've tried over the over the pandemic to really raise the level of immunity that people have uh, throughout the community and the the more immunity there is the the less chance of spread and it's only going to spread within say people who are unvaccinated or who who aren't aren't don't have some sort of level of natural immunity because of previous uh, previous infection and so so it's you know basically that 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 group that it can really spread through is going to you know is getting lower and lower or smaller and smaller and so at some Mm. point we're going to have like a steady state of of what's just circulating within the community thomas tenkate with us professor school of occupational and public health toronto metropolitan university thomas always thanks so much for the time be well Uh, thanks scott thanks have a great day 
You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills for producing and, of course, Diana in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hi, this is Paul from London, and I have to take exception to what your economist said earlier. He said that people may complain about carbon, but they know they can't shut down the economy for it. And that is so very, very wrong. If we don't deal with carbon and deal with it now, there will be no economy because everybody will be dead or they'll be living in some post-apocalyptic hellscape. The water wars have already started. We got to deal with carbon and we have to deal with it now. I don't care what it costs. We have to deal with it. Some do. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.